So good evening, everyone. All right, so we are discussing Jiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha, and we're finishing up the check section on the Jiva. As you know, as his main outline for the section on the Jiva, he used 21 intrinsic qualities that were given by Jamatri Muni. Now, we've gone over those extensively. And what he did, what Jiva Goswami did in this Paramatma Sandarbha is he, he, he used those, that listing of 21 and then he gave evidence from the Srimad Bhagavatam for those 21 characteristics individually. Now, in closing this section, there's two Anachetas and in the first of those two Anachetas, uh, he's going to quote directly from the a Bhagavatam, section of the Bhagavatam, that lists ten attributes of the Jiva, as given by Lord Kapila Dev. And then he's going to quote directly from the Bhagavatam, Prahlad Maharaj, who gives a listing of, I believe, twelve. So is this Anacheta 44? This is Anacheta 45. Are they the same quantities? No. What he's doing here is he is he's saying the information's also presented in the Bhagavatam. You can look to these two areas of the Bhagavatam for a listing of the intrinsic qualities of the Jiva. Now we we have to go back through the whole twenty one listing, but in the twenty one he actually used individual Bhagavatam verses. So he's just He's summarizing here using the Bhagavatam just to pound the post, to reinforce his point. So we'll start with the first Anacheta 45. Uh, and this is from Bhagavan Kapila. Uh, ten attributes of the Jiva. So Jiva Goswami writes, uh, Elsewhere also Bhagavan Kapila describes the Jiva in three verses which are supportive of the definition of the jiva imparted by the sage Sri Jamatri Muni. The intrinsic characteristics of the jiva were imparted by Sri Jamatri Muni, a very very senior teacher of Sri Vaishnava Sampradaya, in the line of Sri Ramanujacharya, who has followed the Padma Purana where it is said in the course of explaining Pranava Om. Then he gives the, the three verses uh, spoken by Lord Kapila Dave. When the mind is purged of its impurities, like lust and greed, which arise from identification with the notions of I and mine, it becomes pure indifferent to pleasure and pain and equal pose. Then the conscious being, Purusha, here he's referring to the Jiva, not the Purusha as the Supreme Lord, but we also have our little Purusha. We're able to do some creating of our own along the way. What we create is karma. <laughs> uh, then the conscious being, Purusha, perceives itself as a nonad, as beyond material nature, 
perpetually self-effulgent, atomic, and indivisible, being endowed in the self with knowledge and dispassion, as well as with devotion, it sees itself in all respects as unattached, and material nature as having lost all power of it. Now, for a true entry into what Lord Kapil is saying here, we need to go back and study that section of the Bhagavatam and put the verse in context. And that we're not going to do. We're just going to go with what Jiva's presenting here because we're studying his Sandarva. But I'm sure there's some context where he's he's giving in his discussion with his mother Devahuti, you know, instructions on the nature of the self. So it's interesting what Lord Kapil is saying here is said saying when you're purified of attachment to material nature, when your mind is pure, when your mind is clear of that attachment and that false sense of I and mine, which makes us relate with the material world and with this material body and with its environment and everything as as being the true sense. I mean, we take on an identity in material nature which we accept as our very self. So when we can give that up, then we can start to recognize, Lord Kapil is saying, the true nature of our self. And at that time, we become conscious of, of what? He says, uh, the, we perceive that we're a monad, kavala, that we're pure, that we're very small, but we're pure. That we're beyond material nature, although we're in material nature. That we're perpetually self-effulgent, meaning we ourselves have capacity. Um, that we're atomic. We see we have a big body, but the nature of the self is very small. And that we're indivisible. Now, understand, he's speaking of someone who's realizing these things. It's not like they've received outside knowledge. He's saying, when the soul becomes purified, that could be, we could become purified by bhakti, or we could become purified by the practice of yoga. These things will become self-evident. So he's not talking about an imp- a false imposition upon ourselves, from outside, he's saying this, these things will naturally arise in one when you give up this false identification with material nature. You realize you're, you're a spirit soul. You realize these things will, will self-manifest. Well, they, they're not really manifest. They're there all along. In other words, they're uncovered and you're aware of them. So in that way, they become manifest to us. So, as Jiva does, then he himself gives a commentary on these three verses from the Bhagavatam. And we'll read the commentary that Jiva gives. The syntax of the three verses, which form a single sentence, is clear. The first verse signifies that the Atma is eternally unblemished. And in the commentary here, as has been presented before, 
he puts the particular words of the Sanskrit verses so it's presented nicely. I'm not going to read the Sanskrit words because it makes it difficult to follow the, the flow of what's being presented. But if I was, then that flow would be interrupted, but you'd have you'd be able to go back to the actual verse, the three verses, you know. Ahamama bi manotham thai, karma loba dibir malai, vitam yada mana sudam, adukam asukam samam, tada purusha atmanam, kevalam pakriti param, nirantaram swayam jyotir, animanam akanditam, janavairagya yuktena bhakti yuktena chatmana, Paripashyat udasinam prakritim cha hatau jasam. No, I'm reading the, the ah. Sanskrit, so you'll recognize as we go through, well, Jyotir's in there. You'll see these words are here, Atmanam, Kevalam, pure, uh, Prakriti Param, above the modes of material nature, Nirantaram. So, just to give you some context, those are the verses. So Jiva Goswami's commentary. The first verse signifies that the Atman is eternally unblemished. The word Atmanam means that the Jiva is the referent of the pronoun I. Otherwise, there would be no perception of the self. So there has to be a sense of I-ness. We are something. It's not like we become nothing when we rise above the body-mind complex we become aware of what we really are and give up the false identification of the self with the body-mind complex. Or as will be referred to in the next, the Anacheta after the next one, we become aware of the fact that, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the wording there, um, Anyway, the, the true sense of I, the true sense of our, our self. We do have a false ego, but we have a real ego too. The word kevala, a monad, by the translator, he uses the word monad for kevala, <laughs> indicates the self-establishment of its own unique identity. In reality, uh, prakriti param, beyond material nature, means that it is free from modifications. The compound bhakti yuktena, endowed with devotion, implies that because this, of this, the self's manifestation, eternality of such existence indicates that the word narantara, the jiva, is to be understood as an integrated part of paramatma. Swayam Jyoti, self-effulgent means that the jiva is self-luminous in regard to itself. And also, not merely of the nature of consciousness. And in this Anucheta, what he does, interesting enough, and I'm not reading it, as I said, I'm not reading he quotes the Sanskrit from the earlier Anuchetas that we went through already in regards to these specific qualities. Mm-hmm. 
Um, anim and ah. Atomic means that it is anu in dimension and also distinct in every body. Uh, akandikta, indivisible, signifies that it is inherently endowed with the capacity of knowership, agency, and experiential capacity because it has potencies such as consciousness that are inseparable from its being. Again, this emphasis on these specific three qualities that the true nature of the jiva is you have knowledge, knowership, you have cognitive capacity, agency, you have the act, the, the capacity to act. So you could have cognition, you have cognition, it's part of the nature, intrinsic quality of the jiva. And these were the three qualities as pointed out at the very beginning of this center section of the Paramatma Sandarbha that jiva specifically uh, was wanted to give to us from Jamatri Muni. These three things that we do have the capacity to know it's part of our intrinsic nature. Knowledge is there. An ability to, to, to have awareness of what's around us and to absorb knowledge of our, of our nature or our environment. Within the material world, we know that that knowing capacity is very much limited and we could go back to the Tatvas and Dharma and say, well, how so limited? Well, how limited is it? Well, we have imperfect senses. We have imperfect senses means that we can be an illusion. Illusion means we can make mistakes. And we carry with us this whole body-mind complex impressions referred to as samskaras from prior involvement with the environment. So we have a predispositional bias. I like hot, I like, you know, we have our likes and dislikes based on where we've been and what we've experienced in the past. Now our current environment may change that. So we'll take our current environment with us into the next body. So these four defects make it impossible within the material realm, as Jiva pointed out in the Tattvasiddharma, to acquire perfect knowledge through the senses. And because our senses can not give us perfect information, that doesn't mean they can't give us any information, but it's not perfect. And the information your senses give you may not be the information my senses give me. Because why? Well, we've come from different karmic backgrounds based on different activities in the material world. And therefore, we have a misrepresentational bias based on where we've been and what we've done. And we carry that. And yours is not the same as mine. 
So we come into the same situation and we don't come out of it with the same outcome. And as pointed out, even in the Tattvasandarva, by the commentators, and Swami's made this abundantly clear in his presentations, even when we look to the quote, quote, most uh, dedicated to knowledge section of human society, the unbiased scientific community, they're a lot more biased than we may think. They're working for certain people. Certain of them are working to protect the environment and they think in a particular way. Certain ones are working for corporations that are out to exploit the environment. But they're both in the scientific community and they have a bias based on well, somebody's writing the check that they get at the end of the week, so they better toe the line of, you know, so they, they can't really be totally unbiased. And even if they want it, even if they think, even if we think, hey, I'm the most unbiased person around, believe me, I got this. I, have, I don't carry anything. Believe me, we do. You can't get away from the fact that we have this karmic baggage that has brought us to this body, in this society, on this planet, at this time, in this family, predominated by this or that mode of material nature. I mean, we got this body somehow and it came from an accumulation of where we came from. And... This body may carry us to the heavenly planets or this body may carry us into the lower species of life depending on what we do in it. So this is what's meant by a predispositional bias or as Prabhupada said, cheating tendency. We may not even want to cheat but you can't really be free of it. It's it's part of our nature. We We want to skew things to our favor. I mean, really. Let's just be honest with ourselves, at least. You know, we could come into society and, you know, put on a halo and say, look, I'm just so unbiased and I really love you all and I don't want to take anything from you. Uh, Yeah, okay. The only people that are like that are the sadhus, Krishna's devotees. They really don't want to take anything. They only want to give. And if they want to take, well, it's for our best. So, depending on qualification. Rupa Goswami gives us some indications of those qualifications in the Upadesha Rita if you want to enter into those so that you can make proper judgments. Because proper judgment does need to be also applied within the community of devotees. So Jiva Goswami goes forward and he now quotes from Pallad Maharaj. Uh, this is Pallad's instructions to his classmates. Pallad's a young boy at this time. He's in, what do you call that, elementary school, I would think, at the time. <laughs> you know. So, and imagine the level of intelligence Pallad Maharaj, he's trying to convince his classmates 
who simply want to play, he's trying to say, wait a minute, let me tell you something about yourself. So he says the following to his classmates. This is from the seventh canto, seventh chapter. The Atma is eternal, imperishable, pure, unitary, the knower of the field, the shelter, without any modifications and self-witnessing. It is the cause, pervasive, unattached, and without any covering. By virtue of these twelve transcendental attributes of the self, a wise person should give up the false notion of I and mine. Same thing as Kapila was saying. Of course, he Kapila is saying, when you give up I and mine, these things will become apparent to you. And Prahlad saying, these things are there in you, now give up the false sense, and you will recognize them in yourself. Which are a product of delusion rooted in the identification with the body and things related to it. Then, Jiva Goswami does explain those a little, he just expands upon them really. Again, ending up with the same three specific, in his Anucheta, what he writes, these three specific qualities. Capacity, cognition, ability to act, and experience. I didn't get to experience yet. So that's the third of the three. The ability to acquire, to be aware of what's around us, the ability, ability to perform acts and the ability to experience. Uh, what Jiva Goswami also brings out here in this commentary, and then when it comes to that one quality, Sukshma Jyoti Rupa, uh, Jiva Goswami writes this, the following, and he bases this upon the statement from the Skanda Purana. In this way, some claim that the jiva, being an integrated part of Paramatma, is of the nature of subtle, immaterial effulgence. It is specifically for this reason that it has been depicted as a part of the Kastuba gem. Similarly, in the description of the jiva found in the Prabhashyakanda of the Skanda Purana, it is said, the color, form, and size of the jiva can never be seen. No one can describe it either because of its subtle and immaterial and assumes unlimited forms. Because it is subtle, immaterial, and assumes unlimited forms. The jiva is finer in dimension than one ten thousandth part of tip of a hair. So that's where this statement comes from the Skanda Purana. And yet it is eligible for the limitlessness of liberation. The yogis endowed with the eye of wisdom see it as having a subtle radiance the color of the sun, like a drop of water on a lotus flower, and like a star shining in the sky. So that was two verses together from Pallad's discussion with his schoolmates. One thing from the commentary which uh, brings and highlights the, the uh, Kastuba gem. 
Sri Jiva makes the additional comment that the Jiva potency is upheld by Bhagavan in his chest in the form of the Kastuba gem. Sri Sutta refers to this fact in the Bhagavat Purana's 12th canto. In this verse, the Kastuba gem is referred to as the effulgence of the self, Atma Jyoti. This implies that the Atma is self-effulgent. The fact that it rests on the chest of Bhagavan implies that the pure self is very dear to him and that it is not part of his intrinsic nature. So in other words, it is a separated conscious entity. It sits on the chest of the Lord. It's not part of his intrinsic nature. Again, coming to an explanation which does not in any way support the Advaita Vod conception of the jiva being part of Brahman. It's, it's a separate particle, although infinitesimal, of distinct consciousness. This hereby completes a description of the intrinsic characteristics of the jiva that began in Anacheda 19. Now Jiva is going to end this section in the next Anucheta with giving an explanation of the environments which the Jiva inhabits. Two distinct environments based on whether the consciousness is directed towards the Supreme or whether it isn't. So he actually says there's two types of jivas. Jiva Goswami says, In this way, there are verily unlimited intermediary, intermediary potencies to toss the shaktis called jivas. They're unlimited. I'm not going to be able to come to an end. How many jivas are there? You're not going to... It's not. It's a potency of the Lord, but they're distinctive. Could you count the rays of the sun? Well, maybe in a universe with fine instruments and a scientific mind, maybe you could count the party. But the sun is, is continually radiating the energy. But it's an energy. But we shouldn't think that the Lord is creating more and more jivas because they're just radiating from him. So the sun analogy doesn't carry us all the way to the understanding because Krishna would refute that understanding in his preliminary instructions to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. Never was there a time when you did not exist, nor I, nor all these kings, nor in the future, well, you, never was a time when you did not exist. So when he says there's never a time that the soul never existed, then, well, that doesn't leave room for the fact that the energy, so the analogy falls apart there when we come to the sun. The sun's constantly pouring forth an energy, a radiance, and that radiance can be looked at differently, right? According to scientific instrumentation, some see it's a particle and some see it's a wave. So, 
if we look at it more as a wave of energy, then the jivas are, are that aspect. But again, it's just to give us an, an analogous to what is the nature of the distinction between the Paramatma being the source of the jivas. It's his Tatasta Shakti. But you're not going to be able to measure it with your instruments of intellect. It's not going to fit in here how many jivas there are. It's not going to fit in here how this energy of the Lord is always there. It's not going to fit in there. Never is there a time when you did not exist. What do you mean? I can't even remember where I was in my last life. You said I'm. You you te- you're telling me there's something called, you know, Shastra is telling us, hey, there's reincarnation, and I'm saying, well, I don't know anything. Prove it. You. What proof do we have? We have no proof that we've been that we've incarnated incarnated into this body, if we don't rely on Shastra. Now, without take Shastra out of the picture. And this is the whole point that Jiva's making in the Tattva Sandarbha. Take Shastra out of the picture. What knowledge do we have? We can infer that I think, just imagine, no Shastra, I think that the universe should be just and equal to every soul. I think there's a soul. I think, therefore, I am. So I exist because I'm aware of existing. If we take Shastra out of the picture and we look just at in just at karma and reincarnation, how far can our intellect take us? We 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 and how much again we say, and I say, as a matter of discussion here, take Shastra out of the picture. How can you do that? How much of your cultural background, how much of your predispositional bias that it constitutes your sense of self within the material realm, your mind-body complex, how much of that is is based upon pre a precondition a pre um, what do we want to say well some a samskara to accept that there's karma to accept that there's reincarnation to accept that there's good and bad to accept that there's moral and immoral we born in a we're born in a society. We automatically we automatically come to the, with these things. Basically, do this, don't do that. How much of that also came from shastra? So good luck to the atheists. I mean, really, they could they could get up on the on their at the podium and and speak to their blue in the face, but how much can't they believe in God based on? Everything that's brought them to the point that they're at now. And the same for ourselves. We could fight it. Krishna can certainly, you know, take away your intelligence. He's willing to satisfy that desire. So, the point. 
I don't know what the point was. Basically, we're in this section now where Jiva is explaining that the Jiva, they come in two varieties. One variety has their consciousness turned towards the Supreme and the other is entangled in the external energy and really has to a lesser or greater degree some awareness of the Supreme or none whatsoever. But if we look even to planet Earth, a very, you know, it's a pretty passionate planet, we look to all the different cultures, no matter where it would be, on what continent, in what age, they all have a sense of a higher some energy, whether they worship nature, whether they worship the sun, whether they worship some historic personality that was either made up by the Romans or not, you know, I mean, whether they worship a little blue boy that supposedly, you know, manifested in in, in India some 5,000 years ago and enacted his pastimes. I mean, what are we going on here? We're going, we go on Shastra. And we go on what? Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. We have, maybe not yet ourselves, but to a certain extent we have some revelation in the beginning of our spiritual lives at this stage. Uh, Sadhana Bhaktis, our revelation is, well, we're hearing from what other people realized. The whole Bhagavatam, which is the main core, the main sun around which our devotional practice revolves. The whole thing is based on someone else's revelation, Vyasadeva's, and the revelations that he relates of all these other individuals. And Sukadeva himself being the perfect person as far as giving up the mind-body complex, he had revelation of the Bhagavatam. But his revelation came as he spoke it. As he spoke it, his love increased to the point that there are certain things he couldn't even speak about without falling into a trance. He just he backed off. Once, one little sloka, he said Radha's name, and you know that was it in an indirect way because he was, you know, spiritual emotion. So that that experience. So now Jiva's talking, there are those people that experience and those people aren't. And he's concluding this section with that explanation to us. The two forms, they form two groups. One consists of those whose consciousness is toward turn towards Bhagavan without beginning, and the other consists of those whose consciousness is turned away from Bhagavan without a beginning. This division is according to whether or not they are intrinsically endowed with experiential awareness or direct knowing of Bhagavan. They realize, they're realized. 
they've actually experienced Bhagavan. Their consciousness that they're... The first group. The first group, yes. They've actually experienced. We're in the middle of the group to differing degrees having gradually to one extent or another turned our consciousness towards the Supreme well we're in the Tatasta of the Tatasta Shakti <laughs> we're in that intermediary position where we actually can make a choice those that are situated with Bhagavan, they're fully under his internal potency. So the, the Surup Shakti gives them an environment. That environment does not include lust, anger, greed, madness, illusion, envy. They're free of the kleshas. It doesn't exist in, his, in their environment. We're in an environment where those... We have a body and the body has been since time immemorial, controlled by the environment of the Lord's external Bahiranga Shakti, which will be the next section we're going in. So, that's really where we are. As sadhikas, we, we are in that truly middle ground, so we're the Tatasta of the Tatasta. We get to make a choice, and we make the choice, at every moment. But as the moments become more and more compounded in our practice to be turned towards Bhagavan, then we become completely spiritualized. How much? Well, all the way. Even within the Sadika Deha. And that is the manifestation of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Sangha of Associates. This is what pure devotional service is like. Come and see it in its, in its full manifestation. Look at me and look at my associates. And we could read about those associates and how they came under the influence of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's most magnanimous Namo Mahabharanaya Krishna Prema Pradayate most magnanimous manifestation of unalloyed devotion within human society. A little bit about these jivas before we end. Jivas in the first group are favored by the blessings of Bhagavan's intrinsic potency and are his eternal associates such as Garuda as stated in the Atarakanda of the Padma Purana Previously, previously also cited in Bhagavat Sandarbha. There are unlimited worlds and beings in the Tripad Vibhuti. Okay, the threefold Tripad Vibhuti of the Supreme. What is this Tripad Vibhuti? What are its characteristics? What are the overriding characteristics of the Lord's intrinsic potency where the jivas reside, whose consciousness are is fully turned towards Bhagavan in one form or another. Doesn't necessarily mean, for us it means Krishna at this time. I want to 
stay in this kind of a sangha because I like that concept. Others don't have that concept. They are worshippers of Lakshmi Narayan. They like to, to Krishna is a charming manifestation of Narayan. That's their concept. I made the mistake of quoting Vishwanath Chakravarti in an online discussion as an evidence of the fact of Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. That this com you know, this comment is the Parivas Sutra of the Srimad Bhagavatam. It is the sutra around which every other sutra and every other thing that's mentioned in the Bhagavatam has to be seen. So if in the Bhagavatam someplace else we see the Supreme referred to as Vishnu, well, we have to know that's not the absolute position of the Supreme. The absolute position is Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam. He is the... And I was called to task by someone who was who's a godbrother of mine. And he said, well, I wish you wouldn't use that as an example because not all Vaishnavas accept Vishwanath's Parivash Sutra. Of course, we came back and said, well, Jiva Goswami accepts it, so I'm kind of happy with that. He says, but not all Vaishnavas accept it. So, you know, and I said, well, I thought we were speaking with Gaudias here. I mean, I thought this was a, a discussion with Gaudiya Vaishnavas. It says Srila Prabhupada. I, you know, anyway, okay. But here's a godbrother of mine who, over time, or due to past influences, samskaras, his ideal is Lakshmi Narayan. He's become more attracted to the Ramanuja Sampradaya of southern India, and that influences his service more. He's more into Vaidhi Bhakti, what we would call the Vaidhi path. That's fine. I'm not going to argue with him. He's a much better scholar than I am. He knows tons more than I'll ever know in this lifetime, or who knows. But And I have all respect for him. But on this, we differ. I, as Gaudias, I say Krishna's to Bhagavad Swayam is the Parivas Sutra of the Srimad Bhagavatam and Jiva Goswami in our next Sandarbha is going to make that abundantly clear to us beyond any doubt so that we as Gaudias will feel perfectly content in our worship. <laughs> but we're not the only worshippers of the Supreme. God has unlimited followers. We're looking at one tradition, we're being inspired, we're being nourished, and we want to pursue one ideal that we see in the sadhus that we're following. And we're quite content with that ideal. So how we got there, I don't know. Oh, Tripad, <laughs> Tripad Vibhuti. We're talking about what does it mean to be in the Tripad Vibhuti. When it said Tripad Vibhuti, that threefold nature of the transcendental realm that's experienced by all the various followers of the Supreme Lord, whose consciousness is Supreme Lord, whose consciousness is completely directed to Him, they do have this Tripad Vibhuti experience in common. That is one, eternality. They're eternal. They all recognize, they do not experience death. 
Second, well, if you don't have to worry about death, there's really nothing to worry about. There's none to be afraid of. So there's no fear in that realm of the Tripod Vibhuti. And guess what? Everything at every instant, in every circumstance, is coming up roses. It's completely all auspicious. So that's the Tripod Vibhuti of spiritual existence. And those people that have their consciousness totally turned towards Bhagavan, that's their experience. Or the transcendental abode characterized by threefold dimensionality of being, immortality, fearlessness, and all auspicious worship of the Absolute. All inhabitants of this realm are of the nature of unalloyed being, Sudasattva, and are known as Brahmananda Sukha, the joy and bliss of Brahman. They are all eternal, immutable, and devoid of the lower gunas. They are golden, pure, and brilliant as a million suns. They are all full of Vedic knowledge, divine and free from the attributes of lust and greed. They relish only the nectar of unalloyed devotional service to Bhagavan Narayan's lotus feet. They are always filled with the bliss of the sweet chanting of the Samaveda and are effulgent with the Vedic knowledge. They are the personifications of the fivefold worship of Bhagavan. So here Jiva Goswami is quoting from the Padma Purana. The Jivas of the first category, those eternally endowed with Bhagavan, endowed and devoted to Bhagavan, are also classified as part of the intermediary potency. You're not, they're not separated from there's always that distinctiveness of their being, the Tatasta Shakti. You do not lose that distinctiveness, is what Jiva Goswami's pointing out here. You are Tatasta Shakti, you will always be Tatasta Shakti. What other Shakti of the Lord influences you, that you can choose when you come to the human form of life and have enough association where it's it, the concept, the idea is introduced to you. We call that idea the Bhakti Lata Bij. That is the Bhakti Lata Bij. The, when you receive from the sadhu the intended intent to pursue a turning of your consciousness towards the Supreme, then you have received the seed of devotion which can grow from that association. But here, Jesus pointing out, as far as the char- your characteristic as Tatasta Shakti, that's eternal. Never was there a time when you did not exist. And why does that say? Why, why is he bringing that out? Because the wide... The widely acknowledged condition that jivahood, jivanta, entails necessarily excludes them from being in the same category of, as Ishwara himself. Why is jiva even pointing that out? Again, 
so that we don't follow, fall into that conception of the Adwaitans who think, you're God, I'm God, and that little blue boy's God, and Orion's God, so we're all God, and we're all God together. No, we are not all God. But we are. Achinta beta beta tattva. But we're an energy of the Supreme. And you can't really separate the energetic source from its energies. So we're alike, but you can't separate the energy from this energetic source. And we're different. So just to finish up this so we can move on, because we've covered this pretty extensively. This section here, we could go on. It's a very, very long Anacheda. And I've read it a couple times. He, he gives us some, some, uh, uh, some other... He just really pounds the post here with some quotes from the, from the Shruti, from the Upanishads directly regarding the nature of the jiva, the fact that you're always a jiva, you're never going to be anything but a jiva, and there are two different locations of the jiva there are two different jivas those that have their consciousness toward turned towards the supreme and those that do not one are under the influence of the lord's internal energy we call that swarup shakti it's referred to variously or tripad vibhuti with those three characteristics we just went over or the influence of the lord's external energy there's one or the other. But, let's go back to a little bit broadening of that before we end. Varanti tat tat vavidas tatvam yas jnanam advayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavan iti subjate. The transcendentalists may view that internal potency and aspire to different aspects of it. Some to the impersonal aspect, Brahmati, some to the localized aspect as the, as the Lord of creation, Paramatmati, and some to a conception of the Lord that entails Bhagavan, which means seeing the Lord and all of his diverse potencies in complete, we would say, we would say, complete knowledge, seeing the complete context of the Lord. And our practice is built around that. Sambandha, knowing that complete Bhagavan and our relationship with him and all of his different shaktis. Avideya, a, a certain practice based on that knowledge and an attainment based on a practice, based on that knowledge. When it comes to carrying those impressions with us, Sachin Ryan Das gives a little bit of explanation here, which I wanted to share. And I will end with this. They remain individual beings, however, along with their diva. This is in the context of a lot of explanation is given in this, and maybe we will go over a little bit more in the next discussion, regarding that 
entering into the supreme that happens at, when the universe is wound up. So all those impressions that we carry seem to go there. We become more or less pure. We enter into the Lord when He doesn't manifest the material manifestation. So we we enter into Him and all those impressions. Well, there's no there's no way to express those. So we're really free of them at that time. Well, we're free of everything, really. We're we're basically unconscious. There's not a there's no there's no environment for us to 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 work in. We're just we're with the Lord. He's wrapped up his material energy and we we're as the Tasta Shakti, we're wrapped up in that energy. Why? And and this is what's brought out here. They remain individual beings. In other words, our individuality never goes, although it looks like we're not there anymore because we don't have an environment to act in. So we merge into the Lord when He wraps up the material manifestation before He manifests it again for a period of time. So He wraps it up and then it comes again. So this continual cycle. We're aware of that. They remind individual beings. Don't think that you ever lose your individuality is what's been brought out. However, along with their daiva, translated as destiny, in Srimad Bhagavatam, 3.26.19 above, or karmic inheritance. This daiva is the cause behind the creation. Paramatma brings forth the universe to meet, met, met out the results of the jiva's past karma which is accumulated in the previous cycle of creation. Jiva also gives another reason. Well, he's not really interested in the karma. And we went over this in our discussion on at the uh, festival for John Mostomy. The point was that that's one unique characteristic that Jiva brings out. Really, the reason for the creation is there's devotees who haven't finished the course of completely turning their consciousness towards the Supreme. Any questions? Thank you so much for your association.